The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So happy to be here with you all. Uh, firstly, I'm actually quite curious who is new to IMC today. Anybody come for the first time? I'd, I'd actually like to see. This is wonderful. Yeah, welcome. It's really what keeps our communities vibrant and strong, that every time we come together, uh, somebody holds the role of being brand new. And then when you come next time, somebody else will hold the role of being brand new. And then, you know, for I'm sure for some of us in this community, uh, that was a long time ago, and, and we need that experience as well. So I could definitely uh, call myself a, a newbie to... Uh, the center here at IMC because I live uh, in a different part of California. I don't get down here as often as I would like. However, I feel quite at home here today because um, some of you probably know this and some of you probably don't, but we've spent the last three days here at this center uh, doing a uh, insight meditation um, community conference. It's called Intersanga. So I do see some of my friends from Intersanga here, and I would just love it if um, those people could raise their hands really high so we could see that people came from all over the country for this. Look at this. So actually, um, I'm seeing a lot of representation from all over the country of who raised their hands. So um, Kim Allen, who some of you probably know, who is the Buddhist Insight Network uh, president at present and was facilitating along with a group of great people uh, this whole conference said, Heather, why don't you have people say where they're from so that we can really see that this is us. You may have just come on a Sunday morning like you do to IMC, but there's a bigger community here. We could call this a Mahasanga or larger community. So maybe we we'll start with Dawn and, and just let's do first names uh, Keep it simple, and, and what community you represent. Oh, great, and we've got a mic, even better. I'm Dawn, and I was here representing IMC and San Francisco Insight. I'm Kathy from Austin, Texas, with Mariposa Sangha. Ellen, and I'm representing IMC uh, Redwood City. My name is Rachel, and I'm from Seattle, and I'm representing Meta Programs. Judy and IMC here. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Steve, and I'm from Insight Meditation Community, Washington, D.C., East Coast. <laughs> Good to be here. Thank you. Is there anybody else? There's a lot of friends in the back there. I might not be able to see. Okay, we got everybody. Yeah, I mean, there was a range of communities at this meeting uh, from, you know, uh, Washington, D.C., Massachusetts, Canada, the Midwest. Uh, certainly, most of the insight meditation communities in the Bay Area were represented. Uh, we had a very exciting event one morning where we uh, actually used our computer system and had a dialogue with London Insight in Britain and did a short meditation at the beginning where the community members from London Insight, ourselves that represented all over North America, and then there was one member who actually um, 
came or, or you know kind of got into the system was in Australia at the time. Was a London Insight member in Australia at the moment. So we had three continents represented in this meditation, and people reported back from that. Um, from all of the groups that, as we sat, just for five minutes, you know, people got tears in their eyes because it was a real direct reminder of moving out of isolation, whether it's our inner sense of isolation, whether it's just, even though IMC is such a large, vibrant community, in some ways you think, oh yeah, IMC, I know there's some other communities in the Bay Area, but I don't go there. Really, this is us. And then it continues getting larger, of course, because it's not even confined to the insight meditation tradition. We could say all Buddhist traditions. We could say everybody on a spiritual path. And I wonder, in that five minutes, when there were three continents linked via technology, meditating together, how many thousands or perhaps millions of people on the planet in every spiritual tradition were taking a silent reflective moment? I wonder how many are right now. So, this morning, it's, this is kind of one of the themes that I want to talk about out of this, this wonderful conference. Uh, and just to make it personal, I also want to acknowledge that I came to that conference representing mainly Mountain Stream Meditation Center, also Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and to thank you on behalf of Mountain Stream Meditation Center. Because you may not know, um, but Gil Fronsdale, founding teacher here, and John Travis, founding teacher of Mountain Stream, they're both Spirit Rock teachers, uh, went through many years ago the same teacher training program with Jack Cornfield, became very close friends. And so there's been this kind of hidden parallel track between Mountain Stream and IMC ever since. Now, Mountain Stream Meditation Center is headquartered in Nevada City, California, and that's where I live, halfway between Sacramento and uh, Lake Tahoe. There's a satellite of small communities around Nevada City of about 12, so uh, I spend a lot of time in my car um, connecting with these various communities, and then we have retreat communities across the country. However, even though Mountain Stream Meditation Center has been uh, in existence for two decades now, we've never had a center. So they decided to call it Mountain Stream Meditation Center. There's never been a there there. There's never been a home base. And I know some of you have been part of this community long enough here at IMC that you remember what it was like to not have a place that you could come any time for a silent moment, for a cup of tea with somebody, for the range of programs that are able to be offered here because there's a physical place. Uh, And we had the great fortune two years ago to have somebody uh, offer an incredible donation of a single-family home, which we have been spending the last two years in Mountain Stream working with the city and the county to get permits. No easy thing, we know, whether we've remodeled our own home or... You worked on this project here with IMC, or you're working on the retreat center. Um, That was quite a journey. We, as a community, took on a profound meta practice during that time because we had a lot of heated meetings with uh, different 
uh, community groups in the city and who are these people and what are they doing? And there was always a group of people in those meetings that were holding the space of, of just sending metta. They said, I will not have an agenda for this meeting. I will not speak during this meeting. I'm going to hold the space of metta, of friendliness, of loving kindness, of an open, warm attention to whatever arises in this meeting, in this dynamic with these people. You know, all of us. And for the last year, we've been doing the ultimate remodel. Uh, We recently finished moving a load-bearing wall in that house. Uh, The living room needed to be able to accommodate about 55 people. So... It's no longer a living room. Why do I tell you all this? Um, because wider than just IMC, and, and I'm so, I have such great respect for this community because I feel like this community already has a wider view. So I'm not having to convince you of this. I'm celebrating it with you, and I'm thanking you for um, making this community what it is because it's a role model for other communities. Uh, and so I'm very excited. Mountain Stream Meditation Center in downtown Nevada City is going to be opening this winter. And I'm very excited that we will finally be able to offer a Sunday program. And we are choosing to model that Sunday program off of what happens here. So I will get word to you when that starts so that, again, we can think, oh, there are multiple Insight Meditation Centers doing the same program at the same time on the same day. It's bigger than this. And therefore, I really want to thank um, anybody who is present here today who uh, has previously been on the IMC board, currently is on the IMC board, serves in committees. Um, Martha is, is managing our community at this time, although I know many others have and will in the future. Anybody that's ever helped move a chair? Because... <laughs> That's most people, right? (laughs) Because honestly, it might seem like a small thing. And when we do the service as practice, um, it means that sometimes we show up and we're tired. And sometimes we don't really feel like doing it. And sometimes we don't feel appreciated. And sometimes we're filled with gratitude and connection. And sometimes we feel how big the web is. But we keep showing up. Um, with our own thoughts, with our own emotions, with our own intention to be of service, and realize that when you're moving that chair, that actually is part of the thread that is, for example, allowing Mountain Stream Meditation Center to manifest the way that it will be manifesting in the future. And that when we move our chairs at Mountain Stream Meditation Center and offer our new unique programs, that's going to be somehow brought to another community in large and small ways. And of course, it's not just our um, insight meditation communities. This is our whole life. When we're in a traffic jam and we remember that we are the traffic and it's not them, (laughs) the spirit of that allows... Uh, a non-reactivity that starts to spread. And of course, we're working against conditioned forces that are quite strong. I don't mean to say that just because we remember we are the traffic jam and we can bring non-reactivity to that, that there aren't going to be people moving along next to us who are completely irate. 
and caught in the self-obsession of me, my destination, my car, and why are you in the way? You know, this delusion that we get individually caught in and collectively caught in. No, it's okay. It's a cause for tremendous compassion because there's not one of us in here that hasn't gone through that. And we'll go through it again. But I would guess, and of course I don't know all of us here, I would guess that also every single one of us in here, whether we're new or not new, has had a moment in a stressful situation of non-reactivity and compassion, which is this acknowledgement that part of being a human being living a life includes that there's suffering and that we hurt. And then we open and realize, oh, it's not just me that that happens to. You know, it's interesting, as human systems, when a human system goes into a cycle of pain and stress, uh, we're hardwired to contract down into the most basic level of personal. It's a survival level. So in that way, we could almost call our... um, Meditation practice, uh, an evolutionary step or a way that we are bringing health to the most basic level of our nervous system, of our human system. And of course, that's contagious. Everything's contagious. We know that when we are with somebody and they are in a cycle of anger uh, and they're in it so much that they don't even see that it's a cycle, that it comes and goes... Uh, it has become the world, it has become the main event. If there's any seed of anger in us that is ready to give birth, the likelihood of it giving birth is much higher. doesn't mean that it has to give birth. That's the beauty of mindfulness. If we can catch it and see, ah, there's a cycle of anger happening, I can feel my blood pressure rising, I can feel the reactivity of my thoughts starting to kick up and look for an object to glom onto to be angry too, then we can make a choice to do something different. And that really comes out of our intention to be free and to share that sense of freedom and aliveness with others. Because the spirit of this practice, of course, is that we cannot do it by ourselves alone or for ourselves alone. We do it together even when we're doing our daily meditation practice sitting at home. And it feels maybe kind of lonely. You're missing the large group here. That's so great. So great to have this nice sized group here on Sunday. Of course, not that I would know the difference. Maybe it's even bigger when Gil's here, right? (laughs) So... Uh, I did bring a teaching... But it just felt so much more um, alive in, in the Dhamma, and, and the Dhamma is this translation of the word just to say, no, the truth of how things are. The truth of how things are is that we just went through this beautiful community event. And you might be thinking, oh, I wasn't there, I didn't get to go, or whatever you're thinking. But actually, we're all a part of that community event because we're here. You know? So to share that so that we can all be a part of it felt important. Uh, meanwhile, into a more perhaps formal teaching. Uh, when I was reflecting on uh, what I might want to uh, share with us, explore with us as a community, and uh, I have to say that um, very likely there will not 
uh, be time for questions just because I want to give the Mahasangha or large community a chance to introduce themselves, etc., etc. So just to say really clearly that if you have questions about um, this this reflection that I'm going to offer, I'll be hanging out afterwards. Please feel bold um, and come and say hi. I really want to meet you, uh, hear what your thoughts are, your reflections, your questions. Or you could also just ask somebody else here who's been doing this practice longer than you have because then it becomes a community discussion, which is so much more rich than the model um, of one person knowing something and everybody else knowing less. We know that that's not true. Uh, If we had the time to go around and find out what people's practices are and the wide range of knowledge that you all have in the world, I mean, this is a brilliant group. You might think, no, I'm not brilliant, but guaranteed something, right? It's all included. So the reflection that I want to share about is on a teaching that's uh, traditionally called the Two Truths. And in the Mahayana tradition, it's called the Two Truths, uh, the relative truth and the absolute truth. Uh, There's also a representation of the same teaching in the Theravadan tradition, uh, and particularly the way that I've been, I've been very much trained out of the forest meditation tradition um, out of Thailand. So if I have time, I'll talk a little bit about how these two interface. Uh, what do they mean? F- first of all, I want to work a little bit with language because I feel like part of our process of coming into these practices and teachings and then maturing in these practices and teachings is finding language that really rings true to our experience in our heart. Uh, and we're doing this great creative process of translation, you know, where we've translated these teachings from the, the old language, the, um, one of the original languages of Pali, uh, into a multitude of Western languages. Uh, and then also modern-day Western language. So, for example, when the Pali got translated into the English, it was quite some time ago. So it was an older version of English. Now we need to translate it. 2012, uh, California even, West Coast, right? <laughs> English. <laughs> um, so two of the words that are resonating more for me these days, which are the words I'm going to use to talk about this teaching, are the two truths, the personal truth and the universal truth. You might prefer the relative and absolute truth. That's fine. Give you some more language. For the personal truth, um, different words, relative truth, uh, superficial truth, conventional truth, uh, the truth of diversity, all kind of different words for the same teaching. And then uh, the universal truth, absolute truth, Uh, deepest truth, the truth of unity. All these are different words that might resonate for you. And they actually aren't an either-or option. They go together because it's all about perception. So the personal truth is we're having an experience and in the foreground of our attention, the perception is this is personal. It's about me. I've just created a main event simultaneously we can then bring in the universal truth or the absolute truth that says same experience and it's perceived as an experience of us, an experience of universality, uh, 
a, a level of process and theme versus the details and me. And they're both true. So it's not that one's better than the other or more, one's more important than the other. If we lose sight of the personal truth, we can become quite dysfunctional, actually. So this is a practice and a teaching about integration and wholeness. And I have to say, it's one of the primary practices that I do continuously. So it's not about in the chair, on the cushion practice, although, of course, we can practice it there as well, but it's all day, every day. This is one of the lenses through which I bring practice into every moment of my own life, which is why I enjoy talking about it. So let me give you a concrete example. After I gave this teaching uh, a different time this spring, uh, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, I think I know what you mean, but let me tell you a story to see we can be in dialogue whether I'm understanding correctly. She said, this morning I woke up, I was getting ready for work, I was in a hurry. I was making coffee. I put my coffee on the table and I picked up the cream to put in the coffee because I like cream in the coffee. Something happened with the lid of the cream, and the cream spilled all over the table. I think there was a tablecloth involved. I don't quite remember whether that's true, but I think there was a tablecloth involved. Big mess. So, I mean, you can relate to this. You have your own version of this at some point. Late for something, you know, your basic morning drink, something spills, there's a mess. Ah! You know? And she said what happened was, because she was late, uh, a total moment of reactivity. She started, you know, first she got irritated about the whole thing. Then she got irritated about the fact that she had done this and started judging herself and beating herself up. Then she spewed that same blame onto the uh, container of cream. (laughs) Because that's what we do. The inner and outer aren't as separate, of course, as they appear. So we shoot these arrows in, and then we shoot them out, and then we shoot them in, and then we shoot them out, and they build. So then she blamed the cream. And at that moment, it was so ridiculous that as she has the sponge or the towel or whatever, she's trying to clean this thing up, she just realized, this is ridiculous. And a wisdom statement came into her head at that moment, and it's a wisdom statement from our culture uh, that we pass on. In this culture, generation to generation, most of the thing, the kind of little pith sayings that are passed on have a kernel of truth. That's why we pass them on from, you know, the grandmothers and the grandfathers to the grandkids. And so what popped into her mind, this wisdom statement was, oh, there's no use crying over spilt milk. (laughs) And in that moment, she smiled and she realized, I have made this so personal and it's not about the milk. And it's not about the lateness. And it's not about me and my agenda. This happens. We're all late sometimes. We all spill the milk sometimes. We all clean it up sometimes. She said, is that what you mean about bringing together the personal truth and the universal truth in a daily life way? I said, absolutely. Absolutely, that's it. So... There's two ways of of looking at this uh, reflection or this practice or this teaching. One way is we can look at it in terms of objects 
And one way as we can look at it is the perceiver of objects, which is um, our sense of self. Or if that sounds a little bit too odd to you, you're newer to the community, let's just say me, okay? So we'll start really briefly with uh, objects, although honestly, uh, the same breakdown works for, for us as well. Uh, there's two main ways that we can approach objects in the world, whether the object is our body, this bell, this piece of paper, uh, the clock on the wall, our car, uh, the food that we're consuming, whatever. The world is filled with objects, and we perceive those objects through our six senses, which are the five senses plus the mind. Um, so, you know, for, for example, we could just take this piece of paper, this, uh, the notes from this teaching. Two ways we could approach this piece of paper as an object. One is we could break it down into its component parts. And the other way is that we could connect it with everything. Because this appears solid and separate. You know, it's not the same as this one. And it's not the same as my hand, for example. Okay? So there's a truth to that. And there's so much in this piece of paper. So who is really brilliant at talking about the us-ness in a piece of paper, right? Some of you know um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a, a great master in the Zen tradition. You're not familiar with him. So I actually brought his teaching on what is in a piece of paper I think some of us who have been around longer are familiar with this metaphor because it's often used. But I want to bring it in, uh, actually in his words, a moment of reflection for us. We can take any object and use this. So Thich Nhat Hanh says uh, about a piece of paper, if you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in the sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, trees cannot grow. And without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter-are. Inter-being is a word that is not in the dictionary yet, but if we combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb. Inter be. Without a cloud, or with a cloud and the sheet of paper, they inter are. And then he goes on further to say, looking even more deeply, we can see that we are in this piece of paper too. This piece of paper is not difficult to see because when we look at a piece of paper, that sheet of paper is part of our perception. Your mind is in here and mine is also. So we can say that everything is here with this piece of paper. You cannot point out one thing that is not here. Time, space, the earth, the rain, the minerals in the soil, the sunshine, the cloud, the river, the heat. Everything coexists here. He's cute. He says, this is why I think the word interbe should be in the dictionary. So he makes a plug. You know, this is this process of of manifesting from our deepest knowing the language that reveals that for us. We're all in this process together. You know, just because Thich Nhat Hanh is a great master does not mean that that's a separate process than us figuring out whether for this teaching personal and universal truths work better, relative and absolute truth work better. We're all in this together. And that's really what he's pointing to 
um, with this quote. So another way of looking at this process is the process of um, looking at nouns and verbs. Most of us who were uh, raised in this culture were raised habitually prioritizing nouns in reality. When we teach our children in this culture to speak, um, you know, let's say we have a baby and they're playing with their little ball. You know, or a toddler, they're playing with their little ball. Uh, And we say, you know, we point to it and we say, ball, ball, and they say, ball, and we say, good. You know, they've got it, right? They know what a ball is. In other cultures, there would be that baby or that toddler, and the parent would be doing that same process of transmission with that child. But what they would say is, rolling, rolling. The kid would say, rolling. They go, good. It's verb-oriented. It's the process-oriented. And it's one of the invitations of the Dhamma, of these teachings, that we include the process level with the solidified noun level. Then we can start to look at ourselves as not just me and mine, but myself as a process. And it doesn't mean, sometimes people say, well, this teaching on not self, what is not self? I mean, I'm here, I have a name, I have a zip code. If I walk into your house and open the fridge and eat the food, you know, that doesn't work. So... You know, what is this not-self? Or, or sometimes it gets kind of mistranslated into no-self, which is even more confusing. Of course we have a self. But if we relax that obsessive, self-cherishing noun of me and who I am that's so confining, because if this is me and who I am, and I could label to you all the different main themes of me and who I am, then I have to act out of that to maintain that. And then there's no spontaneity and freshness in my life. If I move into the relaxation of me as a verb, then I can respond in the moment with a uniqueness, with an authenticity. Once I heard somebody describe His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who was a young person who had just met him for the first time. And somebody asked her, what do you think about His Holiness? What was that like for you? And she said, well, you know, what was really striking about him is that it seemed that in each moment, each person he met, each situation that he was involved with, he met it fresh. It was like, she said, it was like, yes, is the holiness of the Dalai Lama every time, but he was always new in each moment. She said, that's the only way I know how to describe it. That's taking a sense of self and allowing it to verb, you know. Um, another way to look at this, and I'm just going at it from many different angles, and my hope is is that um, by the time I'm through, every one of us will take one little example or, or one little piece and just go, oh, that's a way I can work with it in my life, or that's a way that makes sense, or that's something I'd like to talk to somebody else more about um, down the road. Uh, we all learn different ways, so I'm just trying to bring in a lot of different pieces. So another story... Um, Recently, a friend came to visit me up in Nevada City, and 
he was going to bring his teenage son with him. And I was very excited about that because I had not seen his son since his son was in I think, elementary school or maybe sixth grade. Uh, and uh, I worked with youth for many years and, and um, also raised some stepkids. So I know that if I haven't seen this kid in a number of years, this is a new person that I'm meeting. So when I got the email that he was going to come with my friend, I wrote back and I said, that's great. I can't wait to meet the teenage manifestation of your son. You know, I mean, this was a practitioner, so he, he laughed and sent me an email back. Uh, but I really meant it because I understood that the kid that I knew, out of respect for impermanence and change and the fact that we all grow, I needed to acknowledge that I was meeting him new. What if we did that even when they weren't kids? What if we did that in this community? Somebody we've known here for many years, if we've been around a while, we think we know who they are. Oh, I can't wait to meet the manifestation of them now. And then the problem is, of course, is that they act as they always did, and we think, oh, you know, it's not a new manifestation. It's just the same old one I always knew, the one I love, the one that annoys me, whatever. And yet, and yet, we know better. If we look a little deeper, the same way as if we look in our own minds and hearts a little bit deeper, we see that there's more than that. And it invites us in all of our communities, not just IMC, to bring a presence or a quality of our attention to each other to look for those gems of new birth, especially when they're wholesome, especially when somebody out of the fruits of their practice is manifesting something that's an incredible gift to the world. And to take the time to look and not just think, I know them and I know their story, and to see. We can do that with ourselves, uh, and we do. And we can do that in our communities. It's one of the gifts of being in community. And then, of course, we can look at that in ourselves. Where do we identify? What... Uh, where, where do you strongly identify as a manifestation? You know, is it the mother, the daughter? The, why don't we just call a few out? Where do you strongly identify? And you know, no judgment. We all strongly identify somewhere. So let's be honest. And you know, the manifestation of me as let's just call a few identities out so it can be real. We don't need the mic. Just speak up. <laughs> Grandmother. Sister. Sister. Wife? Long-term happiness. Long-term happiness. Yeah, I am the one who is happy. <laughs> we need that in the world, too. <laughs> what else? My profession. Yeah, yeah, my profession. Anybody in the back there? <laughs> Nobody in the back. There's no identification in the back. Okay, we all need to turn around and face our community in the back because they have something to teach us. <laughs> No, they prob- they're probably worried about projection. Okay, sorry, sorry. No, no hard feelings. Uh, okay, so a little bit more. Um, this is a teaching from uh, one of the Karmapas in the Tibetan tradition. So um, currently the, kar- the Karmapa, which is kind of a second in line after His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, is the uh, 17th. This is from the 9th Karmapa, so many centuries ago. He says, the two truths are neither the same nor different. If they were the same, 
All would see ultimate reality. If they were different, none would be able to see ultimate reality. Okay? The two truths are neither the same nor different. If they were the same, everyone would see it. If they were different, no one would see it. So that's for reflection. You don't have to understand it. (laughs) I've reflected on it a lot. And I'd actually much prefer, especially because of time, to allow that to be an open question in our community uh, because we would all come up with different interpretations of that rather than me saying, this is the interpretation. And then the other thing that he said is that the transformation quality of this practice, and it's really a practice to be lived you know, individually by the wise, as the Buddha said. So the transformation is from the side of the perceiver, not the side of the perceived. Okay? So to open that up a little bit, this piece of paper, it is as it is. Obviously, it's always changing. It's not the same as when I held it up before, although it might visually appear quite the same. Uh, decay is happening. But if we perceive, as Thich Nhat Hanh invite, invited us to perceive, this paper, there's been a transformation from the side of the perceived. So then we start to see the world differently. A couple of metaphors for those that are invited into these things through metaphors. These two truths, one of the metaphors I use is like wearing bifocals. So if you have bifocals, the reading part is the personal truth. Yeah? You can just see this one part, and it's very in your face and very real, and it's easy to get you know, focused there. That's what bifocals are for. That's what the personal truth is for. Then we look up and open up. There's a whole world. You know, we're look, I'm looking at these notes, pretending I have bifocals on, and then I look up, and wow, there's all these people here. This is a beautiful meditation hall. I'm in Redwood City. It's bigger than this, me. Yeah. So then I shared that once, and somebody came up to me afterwards and, and smirked at me and said, I wear progressives. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, perfect. Because it is so much more like progressive lenses, actually. The transformation is from moving to bifocals to progressives. (laughs) So first we have bifocals, and it's me, and it's, oh yeah, it's bigger, but oh, it's me, and ah, it's bigger. Then we have progressives, and we realize, oh yeah, there's, there's the part that's personal in me, and my family, and my life, and, you know, the moment that I have a main event, take it seriously. I start to look up, oh... You know, there's still me and my life and my family, but it doesn't have to be a main event. And then we look up even further and go, oh, it's the world. Everyone has had their version of that main event on a thematic process level, whatever that event is. It feels so personal, and it is. We have to have great compassion for that. And it's so universal. And then our open-heartedness spreads to um, all, you know. So just a brief word about the, specifically the Thai forest tradition. For those of you that know a little bit more about this and are thinking, oh, well, you know, how does the Thai forest tradition fit into this? Um, The root teacher that I worked with from Thailand for many years has uh, a teaching that is, it's not uncommon with the masters in the uh, tradition out of Thailand. And he talks about it as, I'm going to use the Pali words and the English words. So Pali first, just to be confusing. The progression is from sati to mahasati to panya to panya vimuti. Okay, What does that mean? 
Sati is the word for mindfulness. Mindfulness is a moment uh, to moment attention to the objects of experience internally and externally uh, with a non judgmental kind attention. Okay? Out of developing mindfulness, we move into Mahasati, which is great mindfulness. And the reason that it's called great mindfulness is that it moves out of the kind of obsession that we can get into with mindfulness practice of the objects. I must follow the breath or I'm not a good meditator. (laughs) We were already breathing, you know. (laughs) It's okay, we can relax. So we use the breath, for example, as an object of mindfulness. The great mindfulness is seeing that uh, it's empty of a solid, separate existence. And it's natural, one of the reasons we use the breath as an object of meditation is that that will be revealed to us without getting into some technical experience of what is emptiness and how do I find it? And then how do I get it? Which, of course, is already totally out of the whole point of the thing. We can just be with the breath as it breathes and start to realize, oh, There's mindfulness of, I must be with the breath. I'll count it. I'll really land there. I'll work really hard. And then we start to open. Oh. Mindfulness of of the largeness of things, uh, which leads to wisdom. Panya is the word for wisdom. And out of that wisdom, we then move into the wisdom that leads to freedom. Panya vimuti. Okay? And that's the whole process of what we're learning here at IMC and in the insight meditation tradition. So we need mindfulness of objects and we need mindfulness of emptiness, actually. Emptiness meaning nothing is solid or separate, okay? If we don't have mindfulness of objects, we can fall into, and you may have heard this, people say, oh, it's all empty. And then we don't attend to our families. We don't attend to our responsibilities. We can lose our basic sense of ethics and integrity because it's all empty. So what does it matter what I do? You know, we need mindfulness of objects. And we also need, uh, you know, mindfulness of that it's bigger than the objects because we can get obsessed with chasing after the objects. Um, So we need both. And so I'll just close with a quote from from Ajahn Fuang. And uh, he is... uh, is one of the great masters. This was translated by uh, Tan Jeff and is his teacher. So this is a quote, but I also use it as a meditation instruction. Once the mind is firmly established in the breath, you then try to separate the mind from its, ob- from its object. You separate the mind from the breath itself. Focus on this. The breath is an element, part of the wind element. Awareness of the breath is something else. So you've got two things that have come together. Now, when you can separate them, through realizing the breath's true nature is an element, the mind can stand on its own. After all, the breath isn't you, and you aren't the breath. When you can separate things in this way, the mind gains power. It's set loose from the breath, and it's wise to the breath's every aspect. When mindfulness is full, it is wise to all aspects of the breath and can separate itself from them. So we have the mindfulness, the great mindfulness, the wisdom quality, and that wisdom quality leads to freedom.
And it's an invitation to us all. That invitation to freedom uh, is not exclusive. We're all invited to enter that door. So I'm really glad that we do this in community so that we can encourage each other and inspire each other and celebrate with each other as we walk through that door of freedom in its ordinary and extraordinary aspects together. So I offer that for your reflection this morning. And um, thank you so much for um, inviting me to be here. And I felt your welcome. And I'm just so happy to be here with you all.